All right, how we doing, Mercy Road? Everybody good? Yeah? Come on. Let's try that one again. How's everybody doing? We good? Yeah. There we go. Good to hear everybody out there. It's awesome to have you guys here. My name is Davey. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And uh, can we get loud again and welcome those who are watching online? Come on. Let's welcome them. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. So good to have you guys. And uh, man, I, have you guys been enjoying the series that we've been walking through? We've been walking through the book of Colossians. And uh, this has been an awesome series because sometimes what we'll do in church is we'll do series that are kind of topical and we'll choose different passages of scriptures and stuff like that that we think fit the topic. And then sometimes we do what's called exegetical preaching. There's a big word for you. I'm going to use a couple big words for you guys this, this, uh, this message. And this is where we walk through verse by verse. And here's why this is so good, because um, it helps us to start looking at some scripture that we don't normally want to look at. You know, there's some scripture that's like the really sweet type. It's like the nectar, you know, to your lips. You love reading the stuff. It's like, oh, that makes me feel good. Then there's some that's like the meat. Um, and, and some of it's a little bit bitter, and some of it doesn't feel good. You ever kind of read that scripture where you're like, ooh, I don't know if I like that. Like, I'm not sure if, ooh, I don't even know if I agree with that. I, like, ooh, that one's a little bit rough. You ever, you ever been there reading the Bible stuff? I have to warn you, this is one of those messages, to be honest with you. Um, they were like, hey, let's throw Davy in on the really difficult message to talk about. I'm like, okay, cool, sure, that's great. Um, and this is also one of those messages that if, if you... If you don't call yourself a Christian, if you're a, just kind of kicking the tires around on this whole faith thing, um, this message is kind of a pass for you. You can kind of just sit back and just, you know, maybe make your grocery list or something like that. Now, I would encourage you to listen in. You might actually get a couple of good, you know, tidbits and insight. But this is for those of us who call ourselves believers, followers of Jesus, Christians, for however long a time you would call yourself that. This is one of those messages, um, and it's going to be difficult. It's going to be tense, and it's going to rub us a little bit wrong in some ways. Can I, can I just, I'm just going to lay it out there for you, okay? Is that cool? Can we handle it? Did you bring your fork to eat some filet? <laughs> All right. Uh, not from me. This is from Scripture. Um, let me kick it off with this. I used to love road trips until I had kids. Can I get an amen? All right. <laughs> All right, we can pray and go home, right? That's all you need to know. We're going to get in the car on Friday, and we're going to drive seven hours to my parents' house in North Carolina, and then we're going to go to Atlanta. And we've got three kids, seven, six, and almost one-year-old, and now it is no fun doing road trips with them because from our seven-year-old and our six-year-old, we incessantly hear one question, and you can probably fill in the blank. It's the question what? Are we there yet, right? Now, um, my one-year-old, he can't talk yet, but what he does is just takes his passy out and throws it across the car and then just screams the whole time, okay? So we have decided we're not traveling during the day. We're going to leave at night, so they sleep the whole time because I don't want to hear, are we there yet, the entire time. Now, I can't blame my kids. I remember being seven or six, and I remember the feeling of going on road trips and consistently wondering, when, we're, when are we going to arrive? Like, I'm like, Dad, like, are we there? Are we, like, I've... I've done everything that I brought to do. I've played all the games on the Game Boy. Hello. <laughs> I've done all, I've read all the books. I've, we've played the sign game now 26 times. It's getting boring. I've done the crossword. Are we there yet? Usually all of that lasted me about two hours in the trip. And then I'm perpetually looking forward to, like, when are we going to get there? The thing that makes it more complicated now is that our kids are starting to do the math on stuff. So they ask, uh, how long does it take to get to Nana and Gita's house? I'm like, okay, it's seven hours to get to Nana and Gita's house. But they don't know how to factor in the different things that you might run into, like traffic jams. And so they're doing the math where they're going, okay, we've been in this traffic jam now for 
I don't know, 45 minutes standstill, that means in their mind, we should be 45 minutes closer to Nana and Gita's house, right? Wrong. We might have been in the car for 45 minutes, but we are not 45 minutes further down the road. And the last time this happened, I started thinking about this. Sometimes this feels like the Christian walk, doesn't it? Come on, sometimes it feels like you've been in this, right? You've been in the car, so to speak, for a while, but you're wondering why you don't feel like you're further down the road. You know what I mean? Like maybe you've just stepped into a relationship with Jesus and your presupposition about this was like, okay, I've heard all the language. You go from death to life, from lost to found. Like the things that I used to struggle with, the propensities or the temptations I used to have, now I should be cured of all of that, right? And then you're, you're, you're wondering why you almost feel more tempted now on the other side of it. Or, or maybe you're here and you've been following Jesus for a long time and you're wondering why... 20 years of following after Jesus, why am I still struggling with the same thing that I was before I gave my life to Jesus? Anybody else in here have that question, right? Is it just me? Because I would suppose that every single one of us has what, what you could probably call kind of that, that pet sin that we consistently deal with, we consistently struggle with, and I want to talk about how do we actually break free from that? Because can I tell you something? If you get nothing else in here today, I need you to understand that Jesus went to the cross and died for you and I so that we could be completely forgiven of our sins. But he didn't stay dead. He raised from the dead so that we could also be set free from our sins. So they don't have to hold us back. They don't have to hold us in bondage. They don't have to be something that we continually and perpetually struggle with. But how? When you and I, when we stepped into that moment, whatever it was, maybe it was a conference or here at a church service at Mercy Road or some other church or maybe kneeling beside your bed or whatever it was where you gave your life to Jesus, there was something powerful and supernatural that happened. It literally, uh, the theological word for it is regeneration. In a moment, in an instant, God took your heart of stone that was not malleable or sensitive to the things of God and he swapped it out for a heart of flesh. Something that you can now, you started getting more sensitive to the things of God. You started feeling conviction or compassion or some things that you know are characterized by the person of Jesus. And, 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 and that happens in a moment. And the punishment for your sin was gone. Like in a moment, gone. The problem is, is while the punishment for our sin was gone, the presence of sin still seems to exist, doesn't it? And that's what Colossians 3 addresses, is this struggle that we have, every one of us as believers, where we're like, man, why can I not get over this thing? Now, it's going to take us a second to get to Colossians 3. I'm going to forewarn you because I need to talk about this idea of sin. This word sin is not a popular thing in uh, nowadays, modern Western Christian American church culture. We don't like to talk about sin. We kind of like to dance around the issue. We'll call it something like mistakes, right? Oh, yeah, I make it was, I don't sin's kind of a heavy, strong word. Listen, friends, Jesus did not die for mistakers. He died for sinners. And I'm not preaching this at you because, listen, I am like chief sinner. I probably outsend you 10 to 1 this week, okay? 
I'm telling you, if we don't understand the gravity of this word sin, we will never understand the miracle of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And the beauty of what he did to completely hide us in behind his blood so that we could walk in freedom. The, the word sin in the New Testament is often the word hamartia. Say hamartia. What it literally means is to miss the mark. And so you, you, you have a standard or a target or something to aim at. In this case, it would be God's standard, and you miss the mark. And Scripture says that every single one of us in Romans, every one of us, like all of us, we've all missed the mark. And there is a standard of perfection, a standard of love, a standard of holiness, and that is God. But we all fall short of that. And if you don't believe you fall short of that, all we have to do is look at just a couple of the tenets of God's standard. Um, there's 10 that he made really easy for us. They're called the 10 what? Commandments, right? And, and, and one of those says, don't lie. Now, how many of you, by a raise of hands, have ever lied before? Okay, if you're not raising your hand, guess what? You just lied. <laughs> Welcome to the club, okay? You just fell short. I mean, listen, I'm not saying this in, like, in, in, in jest or levity. I mean, we all fall short. Like, we can't even hold to our own standards, friends. In a couple of short months, you're going to make New Year's resolutions. How long are you going to keep those resolutions? So if we, can't, if we can't, like, hold to our own standards, like, how much more do we fall short of the standard of a holy, perfect God? Praise God that he does not demand or expect perfection from us. But what he does look to see in our lives is have we made some progress? Have, have we, because when we apply the things that we're about to talk about, the Colossians teaches us here, there is a natural progress that begins to happen in our lives where we grow to become more like Jesus. But sin, listen, sin erodes that in our soul. I'll, I'll say this. Sin is not just something that we do. It's not an action that we do that misses the mark. Sin is also something that we are. Martin Luther was the first person to kind of coin this idea, but sin, he said humanity, uh, sin is humanity's inward bent, this inward curvature where we are constantly looking in on ourselves. And so sin is not just something that we do. It's something that we are born into. We are we are sinful. It is a part of our nature because at the very beginning of time, Adam and Eve replaced the truth of God's word for a lie. They were deceived by the serpent. They ate of the fruit that God said, do not eat from. And from that moment, sin entered into this perfect world that God created and fractured everything. And now there's this ever-increasing unraveling of the world that we are burst into. We're born sinful. You don't believe me? Look at kids. They are, I'm going to tell you right now, my kids are little sinners. Okay. <laughs> Like, you're going to have to help me out because I was up at 2 o'clock this morning because our youngest cut his second teeth, cut his second tooth, and I'm, like, all disoriented because I have not slept since 2 o'clock this morning, okay? He, is, he did not come into this world going, how can I convenience you, mom and dad? Like, how can I make life easy for you? How can I serve you? <laughs> Out of the overflow of what Jesus has done in my life by bringing me into life, how can I serve you? No, he came in crying naked with an attitude. He's selfish, and he is a sinner, Okay? We are burst into this thing, and so because of it, we have this inward propensity. He pitches fits. Listen, friends, we pitch fits too. They're just a little bit more sophisticated. Because by nature, we are selfish. Last night, we went to Brown County all day yesterday and looked at all the leaves. It's just beautiful down there. Went to a restaurant afterwards, and I had a, a burger with some fries, and Christy, my wife, had a sandwich with some fries. 
And Cohen had already eaten some of the food that we gave him, but he was still hungry, and so we decided to give him some of our fries. And uh, you better believe that I was counting how many fries were coming off of Christy's plate and how many were coming off of my plate. <laughs> Why? Because I'm selfish. I know love keeps no record of wrong, but it does keep record of French fries. You know what I'm saying? Like, just like... I have an inward selfishness, this bent, that ultimately, friends, ultimately, it erodes at my soul the longer that I let this inward selfishness stay active and at bay. The good news is, is this. The moment you received Christ as your Lord and Savior, there was something powerful that happened where the punishment for that inward bent The separation from God, Scripture tells us. Because of sin, we are separated from God. We cannot have perfect relationship with him here on this earth or in in eternity. Where that separation, that, that gap was bridged by the cross. And now, because of what Jesus did for us, not because of what you can do. You might be really talented, really smart, really intellectual. It doesn't matter. You might have a lot of business acumen. You and I cannot earn God's favor. We can't earn forgiveness. Because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, that gap was bridged. And now the punishment for that that sin, that selfish selfish nature inside of us, it's, it's, it's gone. But the presence of it still exists. And you might experience the same thing that I experience, where you have this like dueling conflict going on inside of you. When you receive Christ, the Holy Spirit of God comes in and takes up residence inside of you. So now you have a spirit nature. But there's also this old nature that the Bible often calls the flesh nature that also exists in you. So it's almost like if you've seen in kind of those movies, you got the devil and the angel sitting on your shoulder. And the angel's like, oh, you should do this, right? He's got the halo and the devil's like, no, you should do this. Put your face on both of those. There is a alive new you, the angel, one of you that's going, hey, this is the way that you should walk in the ways of Jesus. This is the things that he wants for you. And then there is a flesh nature with your face on it that scripture tells us it's not the devil that made you do it, friends. It's by our own evil desires, James says, we are dragged away and enticed by our own flesh nature. So here's, here's what it means. When we receive Christ, our old nature is put to death But for some reason, like the walking dead, it tries, like some zombie apocalypse, it keeps trying to get up and rear its ugly head. And we have this dueling conflict happening. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who's like super Christian, so if he struggled with this, we all need to know we're gonna struggle with this. He said this, see if you resonate with this. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, or but, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. (laughs) Were you tracking with that? (laughs) Does that resonate with anybody else? I mean, honestly, it sounds like a lot of doo-doo, but it's like, (laughs) that feels like my life sometimes. These dueling natures. So what do we do about it? 
Because the reality is, is you, you may not be where you want to be, but you don't have to be where you used to be either. And so Colossians tells us there's two things that we can do. The first thing is we feed that little spirit side. Write this down, feed the spirit. Feed the spirit. The spirit side of you in this, feed it. Give it as much feed as you possibly can because what you feed will grow. You hear that? What you feed will grow. Colossians chapter three, verse one says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Another translation says, if you have been raised with Christ. So I need to emphasize again that Paul is talking to believers here, which listen friends, that means those of us who are believers that have people in our lives who are not believers, we cannot hold them to the standards of believers. Do you understand that? Like it should, people are like, why is everybody acting the way they are? Well, because they don't know Jesus. They have not had that regenerate heart thing happen. They don't have the Holy Spirit living in them. And many of us remember what it's like when we didn't have the Holy Spirit taking up residence inside of us. And unfortunately, it seems that those of us who come from like, we've got a lot of past, we tend to be a lot more compassionate and merciful with those who, who are far from God. But those of us who, man, we picked ourselves up by our bootstraps and we were really righteous, like the recovering Pharisee, you know what I mean? We tend to be very judgmental toward those who do not know Christ. This is saying, hey, listen, if, one translation, if you have been raised with Christ, this one says, since then you have been raised with Christ, which means, friends, that all of this stuff that he's about to tell us happens after we've been raised with Christ. This is important, meaning you cannot white knuckle the things that he's about to tell us right here in order to earn favor with, with God. You can't do it. Like, you cannot earn more love from God. He already is madly crazy in love with you. You cannot do anything to make him love you more or less. He is the perfect embodiment of love and he has extended that invitation of love to change your life already. And so we don't do these things to work for forgiveness. We do all these things he's about to say, listen, from the place of forgiveness. It, it is drastically different. So, so it says, I'm only on verse one. You guys are gonna have to listen a lot faster. Okay. <laughs> Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your hearts on things above. And then he says this in verse two. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Why does Paul say set your hearts and then he goes set your minds? It's a little bit, a little bit interesting. It's almost like he wrote it and then realized, wait a minute, that's a little bit odd or ambiguous in nature to think about setting your heart on things above. Like, how do you do that, right? Like, we all are confused sometimes as to what our heart is. Sometimes we think it's like our emotions. Sometimes we think it's, how do I set my heart on things above? Like, it's almost like he caught himself and he goes, wait a minute, I need to back this up a little bit and make it a little bit more simple in the process. First, set your mind on things above. Because where your mind is, your heart will be. Where your thoughts are, your attention and your affections and your worship will be. And then if you take Jesus, what he said, where he said the eye is the lamp to the body, what you put your eyes on, your mind will begin to 
dwell on. And then that's where your heart will be. This is imperative, friends, when it comes to winning this battle, this flesh versus spirit battle. Um, I lead a ministry called Nothing is Wasted, and, and part of the ministry that we do is we have support groups for people who have walked through different nuances of pain. Lots of different support groups all on this online hub, people connected all around the world who are getting healing by walking with other people who have gone through the same valley as them. So we've got support group for like young widows and young widowers and um, women who have survived sexual assault and all kinds of different things. The single greatest, the, the largest group that we have, friends, is women who have been sexually betrayed. And as a man, can I just speak to the men for a second? This absolutely breaks my heart. Because this means that the, the most prevalent, if we're doing a case study, the most prevalent issue that we have going on I know there's lots of other issues, so I know that we're not the perfect case study, but the most prevalent one is women coming forward saying, my husband is, is addicted to pornography and or has had an affair on me. And I get it. You don't, you don't go into marriage thinking that's where it's going to wind up. What happened? Your eyes led to your thoughts where you begin to dwell on it, it led to your heart, which then led to your actions, which then became a habit, and then became a lifestyle. It is several small compromises and yeses that lead to one big yes that, listen friends, erodes your soul and the relationships around you. This is why what he's going to tell us here in a little bit is so imperative that we understand. He says, set your minds on things above. Feed the spirit. Feed the thing inside of you that is fueling your passion for God. I don't know what that is for you. I can tell you what it is for me. I've had to do a lot of kind of introspective work and study to figure out what it is for me that feeds and fuels my passion for God and awakens that spirit nature inside of me. I love being in worship settings, man. You'll see me down here on front. I'm just like, I don't care if I'm the only one in the room. I'm moving, I'm going. I'm just like, man, this is awesome. And like, I love listening to worship music, listening to podcasts that are, that are giving me spiritual nourishment, listening to sermons. I love digging into God's word, reading really thick books on theology that really get me thinking and cause me to go like, ooh, that kind of hurt. That just read my mail. I don't know if I like that. Something about that feeds my spirit, and I don't know what does that for you, but I would implore you, figure it out. Like, go on that search. I mean, even if it means, like, taking walks in nature, whatever it is that stirs up your affection for God, feed that. Do it as much as you possibly can, because what you feed will grow. And what we want is the spirit side of us to grow. Not because, listen, we're trying to earn God's favor, but because of what God has done for us. Just the other day, I was disciplining Weston, my son, um, oldest, the older son, and, and there's something that he's been struggling with consistently and perpetually. And I said, buddy, you know, we have rules for a reason. Um, and you know the rules and you know the consequences. We've been very clear. And so you've chosen this consequence by breaking this rule. And so when you do X, it, leads, it, it, it results in Y. That's, that's our rule. And I said, I don't, I'm struggling, buddy. Can you help me understand why? 
do you know our rules? Yeah, very clear on them. I said, do you care about our rules? He goes, no. <laughs> I'm glad you found that funny because I did not find it funny. <laughs> Honestly, it kind of hurt my heart a little bit because as his dad, man, I have rules because I know more about this life than him. I don't know everything, but I know more. And I'm trying to protect him. And I'm trying to keep him from harm and help him to walk in the ways that are gonna make him successful, make him full, fulfilled, make him have a heart of peace. And I looked at him, I said, buddy, when you tell me and mom that you don't care about our rules, do you know what you're telling us? He goes, no. I said, you're telling us that you don't care about us. Is that what you want to communicate to, to us? And y'all, he just started crying. I started thinking about it. I was like, man, this is my relationship with God sometimes. God's ways are so much higher than my ways. There's some mysteries about him. There are things that he asks of me that do, it doesn't make sense. But when I tell him, God, I don't care about your rules. I have to imagine, if I'm an imperfect father, that it absolutely communicates the same thing to our perfect father. God, I don't care about you. I'll do my own thing. You see, we obey because we love and because he first loved us. So set your minds on things above. Look at this, it says for verse three, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. This is good news. Because this means that the moment that you receive Christ, all of your sin, past, present, and future, wiped clean. And now when God looks at you, he used to see your sin. Now, you know what he sees? Jesus. He sees the perfect Savior, the God-man, and what he did on the cross for you. And so you and I are hidden behind Christ, and we are tucked away behind the blood of Jesus. And that means we are now endowed with all of the rights, all of the privileges, all of the perks, all of the inheritance of Jesus, who is, by the way, seated at the right hand of God. Are you seated if you're anxious? No. Jesus isn't up there pacing, trying to figure out what's going on right now. He, he, he's seated, and our life is hidden behind him. And everything that comes against us, he's like, no, I, I'm, I'm going to protect you. I'm in its way. Stay hidden in me. Whew. This is rich, friends. And it says, when Christ, who is, in, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Whew. So we got to feed that spirit, all right? The second thing we've got to do is we've got to starve the flesh. Starve the flesh. Um... I heard a story a while ago about this, uh, this guy who had a pet boa constrictor. Did that not strike anybody else as odd? <laughs> Just saying, like, he went to the veterinarian because this pet boa constrictor was, um, was acting a little bit funny. He hadn't eaten for like three or four days, and for a couple of mornings, he woke up and this boa constrictor was laying in the bed next to him 
and was completely straight. He told the veterinarian this, and the vet goes, um, go home and kill it now. He's like, why? This is my, this is my pet boa constrictor. He said, he is not eating and he, because he's trying to make room for you and he is laying next to you to size you up as his next meal. Go home, kill it now. Now, I could have told that guy a long time before that. <laughs> Some of you guys are like, there's good snakes. No, a good snake is a dead snake. Kill it, right? Just kill a snake. Very simple. But some of us, friends, listen, some of us, we're, we're hanging on to sin in our lives as a pet. Why? Well, because it's not, it's not outward. It's not affecting me right now. We're kind of keeping it at bay. I've got, I've got a handle on it. It's not hurting anybody around me right now. Listen, friends, when I was reading this, I was preparing for this, this was so convicting to me. Because I'll tell you right now, I've got little root sins that they're not disqualifying from ministry, they're not, but I'm just kind of hanging around. And this is why Colossians 3 tells us this in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Put it to death. Kill it. Like, kill the pet boa constrictor. Because I promise you, the longer that thing stays around, the longer you, whether you realize it or not, are feeding it, the more it will grow. And eventually, listen, I've seen it over and over and over and over, and we're ministering to people over and over and over where eventually when you are vulnerable and you are tired and you are, it will rear its ugly head and it will destroy you. And what's so amazing is that sin cannot in any way steal our salvation. But friends, it can absolutely wreck our joy. It can torment our hearts and it steals and robs from us the peace of God that we are supposed to be endowed with in our hearts. And that's why, that's why Colossians 3 says, put it to death. The old Puritan writer John Owen, he wrote in The Mortification of Sin, if you ever want to go read something meaty, he said, always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's like one or the other. Like, so you got to feed that spirit, man. Whatever is stirring your affections for Jesus, feed it, feed it, feed it. But then starve the flesh. And when you recognize, wow, okay, hold on. I, there's something right here that's a, a flesh nature. Let's go down that rabbit trail. Let's figure it out. Let's get curious about it. And then let's kill it. Let's not let it hang around. It says, put to death, therefore, all of these things, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. I don't want you to get hung up on this wrath of God thing. As believers, this is a good thing because that means that in the end of all of this, God's wrath is coming in to fully and finally eradicate sin, suffering, death, shame, guilt, all of it. All the brokenness that exists in us and around us, he's going to set it right. He's going to restore it. King Jesus is coming back to make it happen. This is referencing, though, what's called the passive wrath of God, which this is what this means. God's a gentleman. He's not going to force himself on you. 
And by default, that pet sin will grow if you're not actively killing it. And God in his mercy, listen, because he loves you so much, will allow that thing to come up, rear its ugly head, and begin to destroy the things around you because God is ruthlessly destroying idols in our life. For some of us, we've experienced it. In that moment that we hit rock bottom because of our sin that we left at bay, that we just, I mean, that was the moment that God in his mercy allowed it to come up, get known to all so that we could actually begin to walk in healing and wholeness and purity and hope and peace and the natural consequences of that God will allow to take place because he loves you. But he's imploring us, friends. He's like, hey, put it to death. It says you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, verse seven. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. So what this means is, again, we've put... This was put to death when we received Christ, but it's gonna keep cropping up, and so now daily we have to put this to death. That's why Jesus said every day, take up your cross. Every day, put that sin nature, that flesh nature, put it to death, put it to death, put it to death, put it to death. Uh, it reminds me of like old battles, you know, you see in war movies where you have this, uh, they come and siege a city. You know what I'm talking about? And we see the battle part of it because that makes for better Hollywood movies. We don't understand that the way that sieges take place is not just, it's just the back half of that where they actually bring the siege towers in and they start to go into the city. For months prior to that, what they do is they cut off the supply lines to the city. So no food gets in and no food gets out. They completely cut it off. That way when they actually attack the city, most of the people have already starved to death. This is the image that I have tried to think about when it comes to starving the flesh. Cut off the supply line. Cut it off. Friends, so, so, I mean, like, get vigilant about this. But, you know, Davey, I really need my iPhone. Yeah, but what if your iPhone is causing you to sin? Like, what's more important here? I told you this wasn't a fun message. But, friends, I'm tell I tell you this because I love you. And God loves you. And I've seen it over and over and over and over and over of just these little pet sins that creep up and destroy us. Let's get vigilant about it. Here's what this means. I'm gonna invite the band to come out and, and help me close this. This is what he says in verse nine. It says, do not lie to each other since you have, watch this, taken off your old self with its practices and you have, look, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of his creator. Do you see what it says? There's two things it says right here. Take off the old and put on the new. Here's how this works out practically. Let me just give you um, an illustration from this morning because it's very fresh. And wouldn't you know that God would bring me into a situation where I'm about to preach this message where I have to preach it to myself. Two o'clock in the morning, our baby's cutting teeth, and he wakes up, and I know that I've gotta be up already at four o'clock to pray through this message and think through it to be ready to deliver this to you. And uh, 
I was not a happy camper. In that moment, that moment for me, I know, was a test. And I'm afraid I failed the test because I became short with my wife and became short with our baby. My attitude was not a Christ-like attitude. And I felt convicted by that. Maybe that seems so minimal. I mean, everybody would, yeah. I mean, as long as we, listen, as long as we keep excusing that, it's a pet at bay. What happens in every one of our lives every single day is we are confronted with decisions where we get to choose, am I in this moment going to feed the spirit and starve the flesh or am I going to do the opposite? What would this moment have looked like for me to feed the spirit? It would have looked like in my mind, in my conscience, (laughs) as weary as I was and as loopy from not getting any sleep to go, well, I used to be, before I knew Christ, I used to be irritable and, and upset and angry and selfish. But that old self, that's not me. So what does it look like to put on the new self? What, is, what does Christ do? Well, Ephesians 5 tells me that... Um, says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. Husbands, don't exasperate your children. In everything that you do, look not to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. It's the new self. And friends, you already have the new self. All you have to do is in those moments, put it on. Scripture tells us everything you need for life and godliness, you already have. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. All of those characteristics that are Christ-like already exist inside of you. Now, it might be really small because you've not fed the Spirit very much, and that's okay. But every time you decide to put off the old self and put on the new, you feed the Spirit. And in every moment that you do that and you make that conscious decision, something powerful happens. The flesh begins to die, and the Spirit begins to grow. And then it says, being renewed day by day. I love how it says being renewed because that means it's passive. It doesn't say you renew yourself day by day, does it? No, it says being renewed, which means that when you and I enter into this partnership where, you, where God's going, hey, star, starve the flesh, feed the spirit. The more you do that, at some point, you're going to kind of wake up and realize, oh my gosh, I'm a lot further down the road than I used to be. That's the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you. Like, like when we go on road trips now, our kids fall asleep in the car. And then we, when we get to the destination, what do Christy and I do? 
when we take them out of their car seat, and it's so cool because like in their sleep, they're knowing how to, right? And they're just like limp noodle. And we're picking them up, and I usually have Weston and Natalia in this, these two hands, I'm carrying them, and Christy's got Cohen, and we're bringing them up to their rooms or to wherever we're staying, and we strip them down with the clothes that they had on, right? We put their pajamas on, they're still like in their sleep helping us out, you know? Completely cashed out. But then what happens? They wake up the next morning and they're in a totally different place than they were when they, woke, when they went to bed. Some of you remember this, like that feeling where you're like, you wake up and you, how did that happen? And you're no longer wearing the clothes that you were wearing? Friends, this is what happens in our walk. When we step into those situations and we choose, I'm gonna put off the old and put on the new. And over and over, put off the old, put on the new. Put off the old and put on the new. And sometimes you will mess up and you will walk right in the old. There's so much grace for that. Oh man. Praise God, there's so much grace for that. But then over time, you're gonna go, how did I get here? I'm not the same person. Praise God. Can we pray? Every head bowed and every eye closed. I'm not really sure what, where this hits you. But I would venture to say every single one of us, if we were honest with ourselves, it, it has hit us somewhere. What I would like to do with every head bowed and every eye closed is I would just like to, to call you to a response. In the second, the band's gonna lead us in a song and we're, I'm gonna have you stand in just a second. We're gonna sing this together. It's a song that the band wrote really is about this entire series of coming to life again. But maybe, just maybe, there's some strongholds in your life, as Josh preached about it last week, as we're talking about it this week, that need to be broken. And you just need prayer. And so, in a second, I'm gonna pray for us. And as everybody's standing, and as we're beginning to respond and singing, we have a prayer room right over here to my right and to your left, and I would love to invite you to walk the aisles and go to the prayer room. Listen, I'm telling you, this is a moment that you can, a, de a line of demarcation you can make in the sand where you begin to get vigilant. Say, man, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hold this sin around as a pet anymore. Man, this might change your marriage today. This might change the traje trajectory of your life, this one response. So Jesus, I just ask that you would give us courage. Did you help those of us who need to respond to walk the aisle? You walk to the top of a hill to be nailed on a cross for us. Would you put your spirit inside of us to give us the strength to respond to you in the appropriate way? In your name we pray.